Hey there, this is your host V. I'll be representing Creative Block at WonderCon 2023. If you want to hang out, talk everything animation, and get a free Creative Block button, come and say hi at table B25 in the Artist Alley. So see you on March 24, 5, 6 in Anaheim for WonderCon 2023. See ya! Hey, welcome to Creative Block. We are your host, V and Sean. Yes, Sean Glaze, our guest from episode 66, also known as Lord Spew or Spew. Yes, he worked on Midnight Gospel as a board artist, regular show, Tin Titans Go, and he has his own streaming show, Dueling Drawing Request, which is, would you say, Sean, on a little bit of a hiatus because of Creative Block? Uh, not, not because of creative block, but uh, we can go with the narrative that you stole me <laughs> from, from away from my interview show. There can be only one. <laughs> it was a plan all along. Um, Sean didn't know what he signed up for when he had creative block on dueling drawing request. Um, <laughs> but uh, we uh, we interview people in creative industries about their life, work, and hobbies while we doodle jam. We asked people on Twitter if they had specific topics they wanted us to discuss, as well as some drawing prompts. Today we have with us Megan Praz. Tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, uh, thank you for having me. I'm super stoked to be here on Sean's very first episode hosting. Um, yeah, my name is Megan Praz. I am an animator, I am a storyboard artist, and most recently a director. Uh, Woo! Probably, yeah. You probably know my work from South Park, Two Gun Birdie, BoJack Horseman, and then some other other shows that haven't come out yet, and uh, Q Force, and a, v a show that V and I actually worked on together that hopefully will come out at some point. Yeah, <laughs> uh, should be in spring. Should be in spring on Netflix. Yes, yeah. yes. So, and then I am also in my spare time a uh, comic artist, and that's my other passion. That is so cool. I love that you have like done so many of these shows. You have also done a lot of different uh, positions. Like, mm -hmm. did you start in storyboards? I did not. Um, I started out as my first really big gig uh, was as an animator on South Park. And uh, when I first got into the industry, I thought that was what I was going to do my whole career is be an animator. And uh, that was not the case. That's crazy. That's really, that's really interesting that like, I feel like animating is this, you know, like, I feel like people are like animating's done, but it's not because there are a lot of animators, especially for like, um, primetime, I would say, but I kind of want to ask you a little bit, like, let's rewind and go to where you went to school. And did you know that you wanted to go into animation or was it more of a broad idea that you want to do art? Or what was kind of like that path for you? Sure. Um, I To even go a little further back, I knew from the very beginning that I wanted to be in animation because I was the kid who was watching cartoons every morning and like sitting in front of the TV and trying to draw Roadrunner and Coyote because I loved like the old school Looney Tunes and Chuck Jones. And, and that was when you couldn't pause the TV to like draw the characters. So I would just wait for that half hour of Looney Tunes to come on and like as quickly as possible try to draw the uh, characters. And so no, I, I knew early on that this is what I want. I want to be an animator. And then uh, for school, I guess I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. And 
it turned out there was this kind of not that well-known but very good animation school in northwestern Pennsylvania called Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania. And actually, shout out to Edinburgh because some people from Edinburgh messaged me before this podcast saying, hey, I listen to Creative Block. So, um, really? Yeah, Hell yeah. Oh, that's so sick. Shout out to Edinburgh. And um, yeah, that's where I went to school. It's a small state school in Pennsylvania, but we had some really amazing teachers, like an old Disney master was one of the teachers there. Um, you know, I could shout out... Uh, all of my professors, they're all amazing. Uh, shout out to Brad Patillo, who is a really awesome director and stop motion animator. And uh, yeah, a lot of, lot of great people that I met, met up there. That's so, oh yeah, that's so cool. I love that. Like you said, it's a, um, it's a state, uh, state community. Yeah. Not really a community college. Yeah. It's a state school. Yeah. Actually it's um, now merged into a bigger uh, university called like Penn West or something, but I refuse to call it that. It's <laughs> always going to be Edinburgh to me, and um, yeah, it was great because it's um it's in the snow belt of northwestern Pennsylvania, which means there's literally nothing to do all winter but like lock yourself in the studio and draw uh, because it snows <laughs> from uh, November till April there, and uh, you, turns out you can get really good at art and animation if you were just uh, <laughs> locked in your uh, in the studio. Uh, and drawing as it snows like 12 feet outside so yeah was it a was it a little bit of a, a like a generalist animation school because i i went to uarts which is in philly oh really and okay. and it was it was a very like generalist animation school where you like you learn like every type of animation was it specialized or or was it um or did you like get to try a little bit of everything I would say it was actually more of a, a general education than an art school. So mm. it wasn't just we were taking art classes. I, you know, took world civilizations and astronomy and all of these other kind of interesting classes that I actually kind of enjoyed in addition to animation. But it was it was general. There wasn't like a, when I was there, there wasn't like a straight up storyboarding class. It was like you took traditional animation nice. where you took computer animation. And I was able to do a little bit of both, which both of those skills have served me really well. But back when I was in school, back in my day, um, <laughs> we were still doing like pencil tests on paper and shooting everything with a down shooter. And mm. um, so, yeah, I got like a really kind of cool, like old school, traditional animation background, especially, like I said, we had an old Disney master there named Mike Gens, who, uh, you know, like worked on the Lion King and Hercules. So a really amazing opportunity to learn from someone with that background. That's right. I always I always love little regional accents and, and and like things that people say that were were there any um like little phrases that were common around there that like you might not hear other places like in Philly instead of like did you eat yet you you say jeet jeet oh, yet we say that in, yeah jeet in Pittsburgh oh okay, I'm, I'm from okay cool Western Pennsylvania Pittsburgh so I didn't know that was a Philly thing because I know there's like a pretty big are are you from Philly originally, or did you just go to school there? Yeah, from right outside of Philly. Yeah. So do oh you guys? Do, did you say yin like yins instead of <laughs> like we we say like in Philly we yeah. said use like use. Do you, do, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Look at this, my my brother from Pennsylvania, from the city of brotherly <laughs> love, um, but opposite sides. Hey. So uh, we probably have a similar upbringing. I didn't. I was never enough of a yinzer to say yins unironically. I don't think, but. Plenty of people I know That's so funny. said it and still say it. And every now and then my 
Pittsburgh accent slips. Um, my wife called me on it the other day. She's like, say that word again. What did you say? And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> you can hear it. Just like sweating, like sweats pouring down your face. Oh, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. So, yep. Um, yeah, there's yins. Um, instead of clean up your room, you would say, my grandma used to say, you're going to red up your room. Um or we run, that's amazing we, we run we what do you use okay if you were to clean the floor in your house what do you what do you use what is it called in philly uh a, a, a broom a broom uh, okay but like, not that like one. they the probably one, the say one instead of broom wall. they say broom uh okay. we'd probably we probably we'd probably just a vacuum but what, what okay say see in western pa we call it a sweeper it's that's so. That's another weird regional thing oh, that we. A, a, we would probably say a sweeper instead of like a like a broom, as opposed to like a, a vacuum. Oh, uh, okay. No, so you would say, "Did you run the sweeper?" Um, Man, I love this. Stuff. It's so room. good for it's so good With for character writing, like knowing knowing <laughs> like these little teeny like uh, these little teeny things about um, yeah. just how people talk from different places. It's amazing. Have you yeah. um, have you? studied writing at all a little bit uh at school i was just wondering since it's like kind of like a larger uh arts major right i mean animation writing sometimes a little close uh i took a creative writing class but i wish i had taken more writing uh stuff because I, I don't think i got the best writing education growing up in terms of creative writing it was all like oh five paragraph essay in this essay mm -hmm. i will um so yeah i wish i'd gotten a little bit more creative writing but it's something i've kind of picked up over time and as we get into it more i have a writing partner who i work with yeah. a lot and i've been able to learn a lot from her and so i think i'm when it comes to writing i'm more of like a a story beats type of person who can like look at a story and talk out the beats and so I think of it from a very like holistic big picture side of things where I have, when I work with my writing partner, she's usually the person who like really gets into the nitty gritty of like the dialogue. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we work really well together because I think it's also because I didn't take enough creative writing classes and I probably should, because I'm definitely interested in that side of animation, more of, more of the writing yeah. in addition to the visual storytelling. And, um, I was gonna, to kind of like wrap up that little like chapter on school, how sure. did you look for your first gig? How did you make that jump? Okay. Well, um, fun fact, I graduated, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but I graduated in 2008, which meant if anyone is aware of what was happening in the U S at that time, that was right around the housing collapse. And when the entire economy went to shit and, I had this goal of moving to LA. So I graduated. I spent about six months at home, like really working on my reel and my portfolio, um, saving up the money to move to Los Angeles. And I eventually did move to Los Angeles right in 2008. It was right after Barack Obama got elected. Um, and it was a weird time in American history because also Prop 8 had just passed. So it was like this, yay, yeah, we got Obama, but oh, gay people can't get married. Weird. Oh. Um, but anyway, I moved to LA and... The economy just died, and I watched every single one of my animation friends lose their jobs when I got out here. And I was like, I am fresh out of school. Who is going to hire me when all of these people who have been working for years have suddenly just lost their jobs? So my first couple years in L.A., I definitely struggled to find that first gig. Like, I was taking freelance work wherever I could get it. I, um... 
I was actually freelancing for some of my buddies back home in Pennsylvania. They have this amazing studio called More Frames Animation, which I highly recommend everyone check it out if you're not following them on Instagram. They do incredible work. So I was doing freelancing from LA for people in Pennsylvania for Pennsylvania money. And it was kind of, it was a rough time for a while before I got that, that first uh, big animation gig. Would you say, would you say it was in years or in months? Just to kind of like, <laughs> just to, for people who are listening, you know, because yeah. right now is a weird time as well. So I think that's it like is. really insightful, you know, it's kind of like, uh, like, like timings are a lot like, anyway, they can. Yeah. Um, it was two and a half years, I think. Oh of, yeah. 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 After graduating before I got my like first solid animation gig like I had freelance animation gigs I was getting paid to do art I did all kinds of strange odd jobs too around LA during that time that sounds worse than it actually is the way I said that in retrospect but um (laughs) yeah um it took a while so I always say like it's not always the best artist that survives it's the most persistent Um, persistent yeah that's not even the the longest time that I've seen uh, it takes for someone to get work like I've I've I have friends that are great artists that moved out here and it took them three or four mm-hmm. uh, years of working in the service industry, doing odd jobs. <laughs> odd jobs don't have to be sus jobs. <laughs> they can, yeah. they can be, they can be, you know, just different jobs from what you want to be doing out here. You know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I did many of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Odd jobs don't have to be sus jobs. I love that. Put that on the shirt. <laughs> Do, do you have a do uh what what was your story about uh like the the first time that you um that you either got your foot in the door or got noticed or like ha- like how did you bridge that gap in between like I'm doing odd jobs out here like I don't know this is hopeless like what you know whatever like how, how am I going to j- get a job and like oh like now I'm working in the animation industry yeah, uh, good question. So I was getting a little bit hopeless, um, and I was I was drifting a little bit. And this is going to segue into something we'll talk about later, is that I got really into this weird sport called Ultimate Frisbee, and I was devoting a lot of my time to that. And I was ready to go to this Frisbee tournament in Hawaii. I was like, fuck it all. Um, and that weekend, I was like, I had like an epiphany. I was like, you know what? I came to LA to be an artist, and if I want to do that, I need to buckle down and make that my priority. And I remember the last minute I canceled going to this Hawaii tournament. I was like, sorry, y'all I'm, I'm dedicating this weekend to working on my career. And I, I enrolled in a class in Maya. I was, I decided like, you know, I'm going to board my short film. Finally, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to really try to make it in this industry. And, um, I also applied for a bunch of jobs and it turns out one of those jobs happened to be for South park. And, I I really recognize that as like a turning point of like, I'm going to buckle down and I'm going to like focus on my career and I'm really going to do it. And I always say there's this Neil Gaiman quote that he gave in like a commencement speech that says, walk towards the mountain, what in the mountain, the top of the mountain being whatever your goal is. And you don't have to go the steepest, straightest path up the mountain, but as long as you're like as an artist moving somewhere towards that goal, even if you're taking like little offshoots to the side of the mountain or, you know, as long as you're moving towards it, um, you know, good things will happen. And that's kind of what it was for me. I was like, I don't know if this short film will end up being anything, um, but I'm going to work on it and I'm going to do it. And eventually it didn't be anything, but what it ended up doing was giving me skills in Maya. Cause I was modeling in Maya. I was animating in Maya and I was storyboarding and, 
you know, those skills are things that I took with me. So then when I did try out for the South Park position, I was ready. And um, so, yeah, that to me is a very good example of when you have a career goal, just walk towards the mountain, whatever it is. And I, I feel like anytime you do your own personal work, it's always led me to other opportunities. It's always opened the door for the next job. Even if I think, oh, I'm not getting paid to do this. This is just something that is my passion. It always leads to the next thing. I love that. That's such like great insight. And it's also really interesting to hear that you had to take that Maya class after mm -hmm. graduating from school and like to, yeah. to kind of keep learning new skills. Do you, where, where, how did you apply? Where was the job posting? Was it on LinkedIn? Where like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was something that I guess it feels like a miracle that I got it to this day. because it's something that never happens. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any connections. I applied online and it was like, when was it? What do they say? That quote is when, uh, opportunity meets preparation. That's what luck is or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, they picked my application out of my, my professors actually used to joke that they picked her out of 10,000 applications for South Park, but it was more like probably a couple hundred, but still, even then I felt so lucky. And I knew that if I could at least get into an interview that I could, you know, be all right. And that happened. And then, um, it was kind of like this long, complicated hiring process for South Park, which I, I don't think I will go into, but let's just say I, I kind of want an animation duel to the death, uh, Whoa! Job, that's crazy. You're skipping more, over the most exciting more, part of the story. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm just joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, but ultimately, yeah, they hired me for, and to this day, I'm extremely grateful for that opportunity because it obviously like changed my entire career in the course of my life. I was actually going to go to grad school. I'd gotten into a master's program at USC. I was like, oh, I need to yeah. do something. I need more education because I'm not getting jobs. But um, once I got the South Park gig, I I gave up the. USC thing because I'm like uh, cool I can either get paid to do animation or I could pay someone else to let me do animation and luckily I got the opportunity to have a job in the industry and uh, as I'm sure we'll get into South Park ended up being a career for quite some time for me yeah dude getting hired in the animation industry is sort of a, uh, a Hunger Games <laughs> fight to the yeah. death where everybody's doing uh, tests and like trying to like you know like oh I, I've met this one person one time at a cafe from Twitter and maybe mm -hmm. I'll shoot, you know, an email to them. Yeah. It's just like any little advantage you can get trying to get in. There's so much, you feel so desperate too. as like, a, just like someone take me under your wig. Like and they used to give me this advice in school, like go, just go show up to a studio, knock on their door and drop off a demo. Away. I'm like, who oh. does that? That's terrible advice. It's so funny um, because it worked at a time. I did have a guest back, yeah. uh, Von Ross, who's kind of like, um, probably like, a generation uh, before us or and mm -hmm. he was like i just pestered the studio until they took me in and i'm oh. like now maybe that does work that worked maybe in the days i feel like now it's like the new era of tests and battle yeah. to the death <laughs> yeah which is exactly yeah what it was um <laughs> that's so crazy and so how is your how is it because when you got on south park what season was it i started on season 15 i believe which okay. was i think season they called it season of the fan and actually if anyone has seen the documentary six days to air mm -hmm. um because it's the inside south park process that was my very first episode so i feel really lucky that i got to have that like benchmark of like this is when i started on this show and i'm in it for like two seconds my butt is in it it's like my <laughs> back <laughs> um so yeah that was my very first episode so it's like 
hey, mom and dad, I'm on this TV show. I made it. I finally have a job at animation. And then I'm like, oh, God, the very first episode's a human sentai pad. You don't really have to watch mom and dad. It's okay. Like, that episode was crazy oh my god it's crazy that, yeah. that there's this show that like everybody remembers everybody was talking about it all the time that's yeah. that was, was so insane um like i mean it's it's cool that you mentioned the six days to air because i watched that documentary it's great everybody should watch it but also it's mostly from the writer's perspective or from like the ep perspective perspective and so i'd love to kind of hear for you kind of like the day-to-day how was that like how was like were you I don't know let me know if any of those questions are crazy but were you sleeping at the studio were you like you know how was that <laughs> um well it they're right about the six days to air process um from the animation side of things it's a little different because while they are uh feverishly writing and or procrastinating on their writing uh <laughs> as an artist as an animator you're the last in the pipeline so you're often waiting for scripts to come down and boards and sometimes depending on how complex the scene is that they've written sometimes the tds can get it to you in an hour other t- other times the scenes and the setups take a full day or more to to get it to you like and um yeah, so it kind of ramps up in intensity when you come in on a Thursday or a Friday. Um, you know, the show used to air. I think the process is different now because, you know, this is actually a relic from the past because post-pandemic, I think they make the show a little bit differently. But um, yeah, you know, Friday is kind of chill. Saturday gets a little less chill. By Sunday, you're working extremely long hours. Monday, it feels like everything is on fire. And then Tuesday, you are just working basically a like it's like in the documentary like you working like a 24-hour day in this mad dash to get this show on the air and it is you pull an all-nighter on Tuesdays and uh that's one thing I I can talk a lot about is how to successfully pull an all-nighter um because <laughs> I've done a few of them <laughs> so what's your trick because I'm I've never pulled an actual all-nighter in my life I can't oh, do really? it okay like like an I'm actual a, I'm one also not, I'm an all-nighter person I, I I'm also yes I, I am yeah I have to have yeah. at least one Salt hour tips. sleep tips. like one Salt or tips. two so like you guys go all-nighter tips now now yeah. the question question one do you yes. think a one-hour nap uh negates the title of all-nighter I'm just I'm just curious have you do you think <laughs> napping ruins out ruins in the same way that if you're vegan if you if you have that one little (laughs) sip of milk like it just ruins the whole year of veganism like (laughs) all right all right lose lose my vegan powers scott pilgrim style by taking that sip and half of half and half yes um i am not here to gatekeep all nighters um, (laughs) but what i will say they can have them yeah they get but but what i will say is if you work till past midnight till 1am and you call that an all-nighter that is bullshit that is not an all-nighter i feel like no. for it to be an all-nighter you have to see the sun come up the next morning that is my only requirement i'm not gonna okay. be a hard ass about napping do what you gotta do to get through it um but i remember when i okay i remember when i first started at south park and i remember my very first all-nighter and there was a moment it's like six or seven in the morning and I am. I went to their the bathroom and I am like huddled on the toilet, shaking in like a fetal position. Like, how do people do this? How are they still working? Like, I like, I'm like, how do like I'm like these people are not human. How do you do this job? How do you work all night? And um, I'm like, I'm I could barely do this once. And then I proceeded to do it 97 more times after that. So um, 
you find ways, but if, at first it is it is hard to pull an all nighter um, if you're not used yes. to it. But the strategy. So I would love to hear your strategy, Sean. But like for me, over time, it was like I I'm not a caffeine drinker generally, so I would save oh, my caffeine reserves until Tuesdays, and that's when I would drink my caffeine. I would I would usually hit it for the first time like around 9 or 10 p.m. that night and another strategy for me is to make sure you like walk around a little bit eat constantly but like not a lot not so much that your stomach is full and it's going to make you fall asleep like really pace yourself because you know we would get meals brought in at like two in the morning so I would I would always eat during or like have a snack throughout the night drink a lot of water and, and then like also know your body's limitations like I would know generally that between like the hours of 2 and 3 a.m. was when I would slow down because that's when my body would be like, I want to go to sleep. And then you like hit this fugue state at like 3 or 4 a.m. and you just work through and you're like, oh my God, it's 8 a.m., it's 9 a.m., how did this happen? So it's like really knowing your body and really pacing yourself, knowing when you have to go hard on a shot versus, oh, this is my time to rest while I'm waiting for the next shot to come to me. And you know, I could go into the process a lot as well as like knowing what the shot needs to be. Is this like the money shot that needs to like be, you need to nail it. Or is this the kind of shot that you could just get done, get it through, get it to the editor, get it in front of the director's eyes and then move on to the next thing. I think what's really interesting is that you mentioned that you're always in this process of like, stop, go, stop, go. Like, uh, how, how, off, how long would you wait between shots and like what's the the shortest you waited and the longest you waited approximately yeah <laughs> it, it was different every single episode um you never you just had to be ready for literally anything you never know what to expect like you could have chilled talking headshots all night or you could have a situation where at like four in the mornings so like okay new script came down we have 20 children being chased out of school by like Randy dressed as like Gungam side and he has to walk this way and you need to and like it has to you know like you never knew what you were gonna get on that show late at night and oh man like sometimes it just breaks you I'm like okay I have to do this scene with all these people driving around in 3D cars on cocaine at four in the morning and like you just want to cry it's like how am I gonna get this done this needs to be on the air in like less than 12 hours oh my god that's yeah, insufferable yeah. So as 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 far as as far as our all nighters go, um, yeah. I I tend to um, yeah, it's it's it, it's generally a bad idea, but I uh, I I tend to thrive and work the best if I am working in in spurts of motivation, and so yeah. as opposed to relying strictly on when I have motivation, um, I try to induce moments where I'm more likely to be motivated. So it, it, it does cause, um, it's sort of like uh, how a hippo sprints. Like it does it like over like short periods of time, but it's like, it, it's really intense and it kills people. So, um, so, so what, 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 I, what that usually means is that there are periods of time where I'll work for like 16 hours or something like that, or, yeah. Um, or, you know, and, and, um, I think for me, a big part of doing all nighters is if you get to five or six in the morning and you are still doing, um, writing and creative stuff that are, that, that, that's high brain power required, you've made a mistake. I think that, 
as much as you can, especially if you're like uh, if you're storyboarding or writing something, you, uh, you you have to get that done earlier by like one or two, and then hope that um essentially condition your you're conditioning your body to be at least medium good at drawing, even if you're not thinking about it or uh or have enough sleep. <laughs> so so that that's sort of like like your fumes are still pretty good like like you draw still yeah. pretty well on fumes and so yeah but but by the time you know like 10 o'clock in the morning runs around you are um you know you're 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 cleaning up drawings you're you're not you're not like conceptualizing drawings and, and so i mean this is different from right. uh what you were working on because like you know you might have to start a shot you might have to start a shot at, you know, like whatever, three in the morning. So it's, it is a little bit different. But mine comes from like, oh, I got an idea at 11 o'clock at night for a short and I need to make it. I do have work in the morning. I'm just going to stay up all night and make this. And tomorrow is fucked a little bit. <laughs> but but like I, I need to like, yeah. I'll, I'll just be like, I need to make this little short for me, for me to be happy. And then that and then I would do an all nighter, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, um, it's, it's, it's a little different process because I, I can't speak from the writer's side of things, but I do know that ideally they're not writing brand new script, like you said, and using those creative muscles, like, late at night. Uh, it's not to say it didn't happen, but um, yeah, I, I get that. And um, it kind of to answer V's question, because I realized I didn't fully answer it. It's like, sometimes you are waiting for hours, like you have like a two hour gap and you wow. just have to like chill out and you have to like, just relax and it's almost like being a relief pitcher in baseball i don't know if you all are sports people but like <laughs> knowing that like you're chilling in the dugout one minute just thinking like you're just spitting sunflower seeds on your teammate and then the next second it's like oh it's bottom of the ninth i gotta go in and and pitch to the best hitter on the astros and somehow win this game you know like and that's kind of the vibe you need to be able to just turn it off and on like there are times where i've worked straight through like you get in at 10 a.m. and I work until 7.30 the next morning and I take breaks only to eat and go to the bathroom. And then there's other nights where it's like, you're chilling, you're waiting for that scene for a couple hours. Oh, then it comes in and it's chill. And then, oh no, everything's on fire again. And you have to, like, they rewrote something and you're re-lip syncing a bunch of scenes. Um, and it's just like this mad dash to finish. But um, yeah, it's, it's been a very, it was a very, very unique time in my life. And I feel very, very fortunate that I got to be part of such an interesting creative process for so many years. Cause that's the only place that does it that way. So it's yeah. so interesting. And so you, so when you're like doing that final sprint before it airs, like the next, what does the next day look like? Is everybody <laughs> going home? Is everybody just sleeping in the studio? Like what, like we'll paint a picture of that. Though there are times when, you know, like, there are some jobs that finish up earlier than animation. Like I said, we're kind of the last line of defense. So the TDs would often finish up. Technical directors would often finish up a little bit earlier. So there are nights where you'd hear snoring come from another cubicle, like their job is done. Um, and uh, yeah, then, you know, when the episode is done, when it's like kind of in the bag, your supervisor comes around and tells you, okay, you can go home. You're cut. You, you know, go home. And there are people it's, I was lucky because I always lived close to the studio, but there are okay. people that then after having worked all day would have to drive home like an hour in LA morning traffic at like nine and 10 in the morning. And I never envied that. There were some people that would, if they had that long drive, like they would maybe sleep at the studio for a little while. Um, 
but the recovery process is a whole thing as well. Like, cause not only do you do that once, but you have to then amp yourself up and know that you're going to have to do the exact same thing next week. So <sighs> that, that aftercare of Wednesday is extremely important. And for me, it was like, always have a ritual of like, I'd go home, I'd try to sleep, but not let my sleep myself sleep past like three or like 4 p.m. at the absolute latest because you want to get back on your normal sleep schedule. So I would sleep till like 2 p.m. I would often like get a massage. That was like my yes. aftercare for myself is because you're sitting for so long and your shoulders are tight and you're so stiff from being in such an intense production mode that like, you know, I felt like I felt like, like a pro athlete, like an NFL player who after the big game like had to do all this body treatment the day after pulling an all-nighter and then like I would get myself a very indulgent dinner and then you try to just like get back on your normal sleep schedule and, and being in production or being on, in the we used to call it the run um, of mm -hmm. South Park was always really intense and everyone has their own coping me mechanisms on how to get through it but it is it is very very intense and uh, again like I said it, I'm thankful that I got to be a part of that part of television history because I don't, there's no, like you said, V, there's nothing else in the industry like it. It's crazy. Oh, wow. And wait, so how often were you home? Uh... <laughs> Not very often. Like the spouses of everybody would be like, oh, we need like a South Park support group because we don't see our significant others for however long the run was, a couple of months at a time. Um, you know, like you get home so late at night from work that you barely see your partner and they usually get up and leave for work the next morning before again this is all pre-pandemic so I think it's a little different now but yeah it's it's tough on your relationships and um you don't really have a life during those couple months and um yeah, yeah it's challenging that's all I can say but you're in it together and that's why sometimes I'll, I'll make a larger point about animation is it's important to when you're hiring or you have a crew, have a crew of people that actually like each other and can get along. Sometimes yeah. that's more important than being the most talented person is like, can you stand to be around this person for an all nighter? And, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of an important part of it. I think. That's, that's really, that's, yeah, that's such a good point, especially for someone that's like so intense like that. I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah you met your partner before South park, right? <laughs> Just, just before, yes. Um, which was kind of nice because I was a starving artist when I met her and then my career took off. So uh, yeah, kind of <laughs> kind of cool. Oh, wow. So how long did you stay on the show? I was there for nine years. I think season 23 was my last season at South Park. Nine years. Yeah. Now, but before we go into this um, next part of your life, I have been told that you have an interesting battle station set up currently right now because you are <laughs> traveling and and i i kind of wanted to draw to draw your current situation just so that the audience gets a little bit of a visual representation yeah uh i have my my computer this is kind of a last minute thing to be on this podcast so my <laughs> proper computer setup is at my house in Joshua Tree and uh, I am currently in a friend's bedroom so to paint the picture there I'm borrowing V's uh, Surface Pro unfortunately we don't have the pen so I'm not able to draw I'm drawing uh, the old-fashioned way in a spiral notebook um, and there's like a mortar and pestle 
pesto thing to weigh down a laundry basket, which is flipped upside down on this bed. And then the laptop is on top of that. And the microphone is on like a tripod posted there. And I am sitting crisscross applesauce on my friend's bed, um, sinking into the softness of it while we're doing this podcast. And I feel like the whole thing will collapse if I even so much as click something incorrectly. So it's a very precarious situation here right now. It's a testament to Creative Block being a um, lo-fi podcast. Yes. <laughs> yes. The whole setup is on a creative block that this is this laundry basket. Yeah, it's about to topple any second. So we got the we got the we have this little laundry basket. And on top of the laundry basket, we have a Surface Pro. We have a, a microphone uh, with a little pop filter, right? Yeah, it's got the pop filter, as you can see in the Zoom call. Yeah, for any for anyone who's like listening on Spotify or iTunes right now, make sure you check out the YouTube video where Sean is drawing <laughs> Megan's setup. So it yeah. it's pretty pretty awesome. I'm I'm so glad that you're like, let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> At the last one, it's so like I love that it's like. It you sound like you're this like traveler, just like globetrotter, yeah. just like always on the go. <laughs> I um, I'll give you a couple other details to add. I have a cup of coffee, and also Jackie has this big, long, thick pillow that looks like a boa constrictor on this bed. That like just maybe I'm like coiled up in it. It's 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 like this really ridiculously long pillow. So that's a fun detail that you can add. It's gigantic. Oh my gosh, I love that. Um, while we have Sean drawing Megan's setup, I am gonna start the next chapter of your life. How did you, were you kind of like, how did you decide to jump to another show? Because you could have been on South Park forever, right? I could have. Yeah. yeah. Um, by that point in time, I'd been on the show nine seasons and Yes, I could have been on the show forever, but I, there are a lot of reasons that I left South Park. Um, but the one catalyst that I can truly think of is that, so I was doing comics on the spare, in, the spare, in my spare time, and I, I liked South Park for the satire and all that stuff, but um, I had higher aspirations, like, you know, and I didn't know exactly what those were, but I had them, and this was around the Me Too era of like, mm -hmm. I guess it was right around 2016, 2017. And if you know the comedian Emily Heller, she, uh, yeah, so she's awesome. And she started doing this event called Retirement Party for Men, which it was like the, we're sick of men in the industry doing awful shit and getting away from it. Let's, what would happen if we had this party that all of these amazing, talented, creative women in the industry would go to and network at? And, um, just by luck, it's a it's, it's a whole own story. I got invited to this kind of oh hell yeah exclusive party through my friend Nicole, who also worked at South Park, and I went to it. And it was this big networking event, and it was all these like really amazing, cool, powerful women in the industry. And I got introduced to someone by the name of Amy Winfrey. I don't know if y'all know Amy or are familiar with her amazing cartoons. And um, she at the time was a director on BoJack Horseman. And oh, yeah. As I was talking, to, yeah, as I was talking to her, it turns out she and her husband Pete both had worked on South Park back in the day. And I started talking to her 
got and I was like, holy shit, that's what I do. That's what I do right now. And then she told me she was a director on this show. And I was like, it was the first time in my mind it clicked. It's like it was that like if you can see it, you can be it moment. Whoa. Of, oh, here's this cool woman and she seemed so soft spoken and chill, which is very different from the kind of leadership that I was accustomed to. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you could be this kind of person and be a leader. Oh, interesting. And it was the first time I saw a pathway for myself. And then I had an interesting relation to Bojack Horseman at the time because I think even the creators of the show have kind of famously said that the first couple episodes of the show are not really representative of what the whole show ended up being. So I was one of those people that when it first came out, I was ready for it. I watched it and I watched the first couple episodes and I got to the episode where like Mr. Peanut Butter and Bojack are like fighting over Diane and like the D in Hollywood. And I was just like, fuck this toxic bullshit. I am out. I'm not watching another show where two dudes fight over a woman and like, she's like the prize. And I was out. And you know, as we all know, Bojack becomes this incredible, amazing, deep show. Not long after that. But I, and everyone would tell me like, you not watching Bojack. I'm like, nah, it's just not, not for me. Why are you guys watching this show? It doesn't seem that good. And, and had I discovered that sooner, who knows, I might have found worked on Bojack sooner. But when after meeting Amy, and I also met Ann Walker there, who was directing on Bojack. And after meeting the two of them, I was like, oh, these people work on the show. I got to give it a second look. And that night I went home and I watched like so many episodes of Bojack. And my wife and I just got super into it. And I fucking fell in love with this show. I was like, mm-hmm. how do I work on the show? And then Another interesting thing happened at that retirement party for men it was that I met Lisa Hanawalt. And again, I am not a super fan of BoJack at this point. I didn't know much about it. I was just like, okay, cool. You're the woman who does designs on it. So I just like, I didn't have like a sense of awe yet for how incredible she was. Um, but I chatted her up a little bit and I was talking to her and I think we got to asking each other like what our dream projects would be. And I was saying that like, I would love it if there was like a broad city because I love the show Broad City, but like in animation for women. And it was so funny because at the time she was already working on Tuca and Birdie and she was like, well, I have this show. And I was like, no way. It was so weird that like we had that conversation and you'd think that the storybook ending of this would be like, hey, I'm working on this show. You should work for me. Come get a job. But the path is never that simple, right? It's never. It's not no. like you go to a networking event and even though I'm like, you're making exactly what I want to be working on, uh, the path to BoJack was actually a lot longer than that. But I left that meeting being super fucking inspired. And a couple months later, I'd heard about they were doing storyboard tests for Chuka and Birdie. And by the way, am I talking too much or is this interesting? No, this is super great. I no, love this. Great. This is awesome. Okay. Keep going. Okay, so... <laughs> They were doing tests for Tuca and Birdie, and the test for Tuca and Birdie was actually a Bojack test. And I did the test. I did all right at it. Um, and I got an email back from them saying, hey, we really liked your test, but we don't have a spot for you on Tuca and Birdie at this time. And, you know, we'll keep you in mind for future stuff. And I, I thought, oh, great. Like, that, I know what that means. That means I'm never going to hear from them again. Um, and it was actually the right decision for them at the time. Cause I don't think I was at a point in my career where I was ready to work on a show like Tuca and Birdie. So they made the right decision, believe it or not at that point. Um, and a couple months later though, they were like, Hey, remember us? Well, because all the crew from Bojack had moved on to Tuca and Birdie, they were like, yeah, we're starting Bojack back up again and we need more artists. And I, they asked me if I wanted to be on Bojack and 
le- that was less than a couple years, and I went in for the interview. It went great. I met Mike Hollingsworth and Sean Gilroy, all both amazing people. Uh, Eric Blyler was the producer as well, and um, and he actually remembered me. I'd interned for Shadow Machine many years prior on like stop motion stuff, so that was kind of a cool reconnect. But they hired me, and so during my off season of South Park, I worked on season six of BoJack Horseman, and lo and behold. My very first day walking in, I find out I'm on Team 2, and my director is Amy Winfrey. And I was just like, oh my god, mind blown. I can't believe, like, six months later or whatever, I am here. I am working for you. I I get to work for this woman who I admire so, so much. And because at that time, I watched every single episode she had directed and was just in awe of everything that she had done. And, um... And I'm like, cool, I just hope I don't disappoint you. <laughs> <laughs> That's so crazy. So you said that you were doing this during your off season, but th- did yeah. that mean that you wanted to go back on South Park or were you just kind of like, just kind of like worry, like kind of waiting for the other shoot to drop or like kind of what was the... Well, <laughs> that's another interesting thing, right? Like, so... I wasn't ready to leave South Park because I didn't know if I'd be a good storyboard artist. This is my first storyboard gig. I've been an animator my whole life. Like, Mm -hmm. what if I suck at this? Mm -hmm. Um, Or what if I don't like it? Or, you know, the South Park money and schedule is pretty good, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, do I want to leave that? One thing thing I wanted to ask about... um... Uh, when you were getting onto these shows and retroactively looking back, and you said like the first time around you took a test and it didn't work out. Um, there's a lot of people that probably listen to the podcast that are in that same position taking tests and maybe they don't understand why they got on. Looking back at it, um, is there anything that you think that you did wrong or any advice that you can give to past you who did that test and maybe you know now how you could have aced it? No, because I actually think I did the best I could have for my ability at that time. And I think it was true to what my skill set was. And I think they made the right decision for not bringing me on to Tuca and Birdie, um, which I can get into why when we talk about the difference between the styles of Bojack and Tuca. But I wasn't ready for a show that was like, you know, I'd been an animator at a desk for all those years, like not drawing as much as I should have. I wasn't ready for like the free flowing style of Tuca and Birdie yet. Um, to be completely honest, um, I would get there later. And so I don't have any regrets on that test. I feel like I set the file up well and they made the right call by not hiring me for Tuca that time. I got on BoJack. I learned the system. I learned the studio. That was a show that I was extremely well suited for coming from animation because it is so acting heavy. It was, you know, it was very puppeted. The storyboards themselves, they had to be very tight and coming from South Park, I really understood well how Flash worked and how to like build kind of like a quote-unquote rig. And um, I was good at timing and I was good at acting, but my drawing wasn't there yet to be, I think, good enough to be on Tuca. So I have no regrets about that. I think everyone all around made the right decision. And then, you know, as we would see a couple years later, I would get on to Tuca and Birdie. And I, by that time, I was ready and I was so stoked to be on a show like that. I think that's like a really great point you're making because I feel like uh, it's better to not get on a job that you're not a good fit for than accidentally get on a job that you're not a good fit for. Because then it really, I don't know if you've ever experienced that yourself, but for myself, it has happened in my career where like I got hired and I wasn't the right fit. And then Mm -hmm. you're just kind of like, 
well, this sucks. Like, do I suck? Am I like a terrible artist? Like what is going on? And you have like this kind of cognitive dissonance between like your actual skill set and what's happening. So I I do feel like this is like really mature and great answer to that question. Cause it's like, yeah, it's better to not be hired on a show. You're not the right fit for at the moment. Yeah. (laughs) Yes and, and no. Uh, go ahead, Sean. Go ahead, Sean. Oh no, no. I was I was just gonna say, yeah, for, for, for people listening who might not understand this, just to peel the curtain back a little bit. Each show that you're working on as an uh, as a storyboard artist, uh they, they have different expectations for the boards. There's certain shows where I mean there's certain shows where you're building the radio play. There's certain shows where you're timing mm-hmm. things, there's certain shows where you go into the show and they have pre-made puppets and rigs that you can drop into the files and you're like redrawing facial expressions and moving around the parts. And then there's some shows where uh, you're drawing everything and you're doing dynamic acting and action and, and like every show is going to be different. And uh, it is, like you said, it's helpful to to get onto a show that um, that show that um best suits where you're at unless there's a period of time on a show where you have an opportunity to learn and th- and that and that's also great right like sometimes there's a show where they're like we know you can get there we're gonna help you yeah. get there and give you a chance you know right right and i and you know the reason i want to say yes and no is because i don't want anyone to take away from this that like oh if you don't think you're qualified for something you're not ready for something don't sell yourself short like because mm you know, sometimes being on a show that you're not ready for and getting thrown into the fire and having to adapt, like, that's what happened to me on South Park when I started. It was not easy. It was so hard to, like, jump into that intense of a production schedule. And you adapt, and you surprise yourself. And, you know, I went from being who I think, I think I was the worst animator on that show my first two years to, I think, being one of the people who got some of the toughest shots on the show and could be right in there with everybody else. And, you know, so I'm really proud of the fact that that's like, give yourself room to grow. And I could say the same with Bojack. Like I started out and I went from that point where I was such a green storyboard artist and to assistant directing on Tuca and Birdie and um, eventually directing on another show. So, you know, give yourself room to grow and don't be afraid to challenge yourself in a job that you think, you know, there's a difference between something that's going to be challenging and something that is truly, like V said, not a good fit. So mm-hmm. never sell yourself short, and especially because women tend to do that. They tend to think, oh, I'm, you know, they tend to shortchange themselves. So I, I want to really emphasize that don't ever sell yourself short if, you know. I think that's very true. Yeah, for, yeah, 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 yeah what you just said, especially for women tending to, like, be like, oh, if I'm not there yet, I shouldn't even apply. It's like, right. no, fuck this, apply to the job. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, do it. Yeah. Put yourself out there. It's the only way you're gonna learn. Yeah. Yeah, and that's so great. Yeah. How is? Yeah. What would you say? How? So, did you when you started on BoJack, were you like, okay, I got this, and now I'm done with South Park, or did you go back to South Park for a little bit? Did you do a little devil dipping for a while? I, I did go back to South Park for a little bit because yeah. a weird thing happened while I was in the my season six of BoJack was that. Everyone was getting ready to roll back onto season two of Tuca and Birdie, and that was like our whole hope. And I was like, if season two, when season two happens, I think I'm finally going to be ready. I'm going to pull the plug on South Park and give up this stable career I've had for nine years and jump onto Tuca and Birdie, and I'm going to be ready. And I'll, I'll never forget the day that we were working on BoJack, and so I was talking to Chris Nance about something, and 
suddenly everybody, it sounded like a pin could drop in the studio. And it sat like, I was like, did someone die? What the heck? And that was the day we had found out that Tuca and Birdie had gotten canceled for the first time. And the level of devastation in the studio, because everyone loved that show so much. And there was so much heart that we put into it. And suddenly I was like, well, I guess that made my decision easier. I'm going back to South Park because I'm not just going to roll on to Tuca and Bird. And it was a really big bummer. Um, we were all pretty, uh, pretty sad because, you know, again, we just relived that for a second time because it got canceled again. And one thing I'll say about working on mm-hmm. the Raphael and, you know, Raphael, Bob Waksberg and Lisa Hannawalt productions is that everyone really, really believes in those shows and loves to work on them. And we all felt so strongly about both Bojack and Tuca and, it's a really good thing, I think, for a writer or a showrunner if your crew really, really likes it, really cares about your show and wants to work on it. So, so yeah, that was my long way of saying um, I did end up going back to South Park for one more season. And, you know, again, I could talk to you about this for a really long yeah. time, but, you know, then the world kind of blew apart and there was COVID and um, all that stuff. And yeah. eventually I did leave South Park and that's the whole thing. But, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's so crazy, man. Yeah. Shows getting canceled is, yeah, it's crazy, especially for Tuca getting, Tuca and Birdie getting canceled like twice because it was on Netflix first for people who don't know. And then it was on, on Adult Mm -hmm. Swim. And then, yeah. Ah, boy. Yeah. Got to work on the last season of Bojack though, which I was extremely proud of and honored to be a part of. Awesome. That is such a, fucking awesome season that it's so good i remember it's so satisfying to end cap it not very many shows get to like end a show on their terms or at least most of their terms so it's really cool that bojack got to give itself a good ending yeah wow dude when you think about it do you ever think about like how cool it is that you worked on like these like fucking like high profile shows like it's three (laughs) fucking Thanks. cool shows when you think about uh, it right i'm extreme extremely honored to get to work on such a big part of animation history and just put a small mark on it <laughs> yeah oh wow and how do you okay so we talked a little bit earlier in the episode that you do comics uh how did you have you kind of been balancing making comics in your free time and working in sure. animation because yeah yeah (laughs) it started out like kind of just like I wanted to do it I always had a love of comics um you know I that was what I was drawing in like high school I was always drawing cartoons and comics of like my teachers and writing still my own little stories so that was always a thing I did in my spare time and one of the things that I think can be really creatively fulfilling is when you're working on a show and you're always executing someone else's vision it can it can kind of drain you creatively creatively and i think it's really important as an artist to always kind of have your own thing going so like whenever the industry does not go your way or you're on a project that you don't like working on or you know there's a lot of downs like negativity out there right now in the industry with so many shows having been canceled like the thing that i can always fall back on is i'm doing my own thing i've got my own thing going so comics have kind of always been that for me and for during while I was working on South Park, it was kind of my way of keeping my drawing skills a little bit more fresh because I, I knew I eventually wanted to like maybe move on to something bigger, whether it be my own project or storyboard. So, you know, when you're just animating in a computer all day, um, that was my way of like, oh, I'm going to draw in my spare time and like be kind of okay at this if and when I want to transition to boards. And 
Yeah, so I did like a webcomic for Autostraddle for a while, if anyone's familiar with that entertainment website. And then I did, I got into like drawing the Frisbee comics shortly after that, and um, which led me to a personal project that I'm working on now. And is that something that's still under wraps? Or uh, it, can you talk about your personal project that you're working on to. now? Um, so I'm working on a graphic novel with my longtime writing partner, uh, Megan Kempji. Um, and we kind of started out by doing a short like webcomic called Contested Strip. It's a very funny ultimate frisbee pun if you are familiar with the sport, um, which you're probably not. And um, so, but we, wa- we wanted to do, we were doing like kind of short one-off things that only people who play ultimate would understand. It was very like kind of insider comic, but we wanted to take that and turn it into like a bigger narrative uh, story. So we wrote this long graphic novel that just started out as kind of an idea and then turned into like a 200 page epic graphic novel. And it's kind of this thing a la the Mighty Ducks or Ted Lasso or Moneyball where you don't have to actually play the sport to enjoy it. Like you don't have to know about the ins and outs of hockey to enjoy the Mighty Ducks. It's a pure like sports comedy ragtag team of underdogs who try to win a national championship. And there are all these fun characters and ridiculous things that happen throughout the comic as they're on their route to winning a national championship. There's drama, there's inter-team, intra-team relationships, there's heartbreak, there's romance, uh, there's all kinds of stuff that happens. So it's a project we've been working on for about four years. And um, yeah, we're hoping to finish it this year. Um, we want to get it published. We're wow. really proud of it. It's over 200 pages. That's so cool. I've, yeah, I'm really, really, really stoked on it and um, been working on it for a long time. And I'm actually, it's four years in and I'm still into it. I'm still like, this is the thing I want to be working on in my spare time, which is kind of cool. That is awesome. I feel like a lot of people struggle with that, you know, like yeah. sticking to a project. I feel like, do you feel like having a writing partner also helps? Cause you can keep like, like psych each other up about exactly. it. Exactly. Like our whole MO with this comic, if nothing ever comes of it, if like the world blows up tomorrow, I could still say that like, I had such a fun time writing it with my writing partner. <laughs> and it's the other thing is it like feeds back into my own career is like, you know, when we're talking about story and plot and planting and payoff and foreshadowing and all of these things, these are all things that work in my animation career, all things that like help me become a better storyteller, whether it be boarding a scene or directing. And, you know, we've had some really amazing artists that we've hired to help us with the, the colors and some of the other line work. So that's made maybe I've had to suddenly go from being a person who this is exactly what I want. I know how to draw it to, oh, I need to be a really good communicator because I need to be able to communicate what I want to this other person who's helping out. And I think all of that side project stuff that you end up doing makes you a better at your career. Like it made me a better director to be able to have the language to say, oh, this is how I communicate with this person to tell them what this scene needs to be and what the feeling that we're going for here. And, and like you said, like feeding off of another person's creativity is great. Like I don't, think I would do this if it was just me um I'm not motivated enough uh on my own but like just Ro and I or Megan the other Megan uh making each other laugh is like my constant motivation in this project this is like we just love cracking each other up and um it's it's very very special to have that kind of creative relationship with somebody do you feel like um uh, making sure that you're working on your own personal projects throughout all this time do you feel like it's contributed towards when you storyboard inserting yourself just a little bit more into the work rather than um, uh, like, like there's 
one way of approaching a storyboard or something where you uh, are doing exactly what you think the safest thing to do for that scene would be versus like, how would I do this as a, mm. like a personal creative? Like, has that, has that had any effects on your, um, your, your taste or your vision or execution uh, on boards? Um, I think for me, boards, you know, cause you are working for someone else. It's really understanding what the writer wants, what the intention is. So like, it's really trying to get into the showrunner's head and, if you have a showrunner that you like really, really agree with, I think that could be like what they're trying to do and you see what they do. Like it's, you can bring your own sure. personal experience into it, but it's ultimately like, how do I execute this vision? And if, if I could give an example from Bojack, actually, um, would that be cool? Um, because yes, I cannot stress enough how much I admired the writers of Bojack Horseman, and especially Raphael as the showrunner, like how much empathy and emotional depth he would bring to characters and the storylines in that show. And Probably, I would go as far to say the greatest honor of my career was to get to work on, um, if you're familiar with the penultimate episode of BoJack Horseman, The View from Halfway Down, it's like that epic dinner party one, and I got to do, uh, Mm -hmm. Amy Winfrey directed that, again, amazing director, so brilliant, I'm so lucky I got to work with her, Um, but she entrusted me with doing the Secretariat bits on that episode, and that was a character that, you know, it's really dark. He did the poem, the title of the episode, the view from halfway down where he does this really, really intense poetry reading about jumping, uh, jumping off of a bridge, I think. And, um, so talking about bringing your own personal experiences, like to get into that scene, I had to go into a super dark place. Um, cause I did the thumbnails on it. I can't say that I did the cleans on it, but I thumbnailed it. And, um, you know, like you bring the dark, you have to go to the depths of your own life and the darkest parts of your own life. And I remember driving to the studio on the days that I would work on that scene and I would put like jumpers on by Sleater Kenny, which is like a song about jumping off of the Golden Gate Bridge. And I would just try like you live in that mindset when you're a board artist and you live in that for a couple of days and and you feel the importance of that scene too. Like again, like we all when we worked on Bojack, we believed in it so much and I knew how emotionally deep that scene was and how important it was gonna be to people. And I think it was Alison Tuffel, I don't know if I'm saying her name right, who wrote that episode and yeah, like, so bringing a part of yourself and, like, into that performance and putting yourself, like, grabbing the depths of who you are and the darker parts of your own story and putting it into that character to, like, serve the scene. Um, I was so, like, I felt so lucky that I got to work on that. And, and I think that scene really resonated with a lot of people. And I loved that episode of television. So, like, yes, you bring yourself to it, but, you know, like, you're ultimately serving the creator's vision and um, I'd work on anything that Raphael or Lisa made for that reason. Cause I love like the emotional depth they brought to everything that they, and how thoughtful they were about all the characters and um, yeah, be a showrunner that artists want to work for, <laughs> you know, write good stuff. That yeah. gave me chills. So, <laughs> that was crazy. Yeah, no, yeah. It, it, dude, it's it's so it's so rare that um that on a show i mean like we work on so many shows that are like it's goofy yeah, very yeah. rarely or things taken very seriously and like it you're lucky to to have been able to work on an episode that um you know that the audience is going to feel something yeah. or you hope that they do you know what i mean yeah. but like a lot of the time when you're watching cartoons no one feels anything except for like laughing right. and that's great but like um i've I've only I've only had one experience um 
like that yeah. when I was working on the Midnight Gospel. There's yeah. an episode where Duncan Trussell is, mm. it's literally a conversation with his mom who's going to die. And oh. in the episode, he, so my, so my, the first scene I had to storyboard in that last episode was him burying his mom and that mushroom mm. growing out of her. Mm. And, and my, my storyboard partner next to me was storyboarding like, like funny bears and like pitching like little bear jokes, like like little the little bear doctors running around who are like doing cute stuff. And I'm like, you get to do that. <laughs> and 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 like the very first scene I'm working on on this episode, like 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 it's someone like sobbing and yeah. like a really emotional moment that 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 really is an important part of 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 the series and uh and i was like okay all right so i guess today i'm, I'm gonna be sad T today i gotta <laughs> get into that mode like right. i gotta act, i gotta act you know yeah. um and uh yes yeah, so some of those so some of those scenes in that episode make people cry and it and yeah. it, it it makes that series um more important to me that i worked on it too right. so and i think what's sometimes hard for viewers to understand is that like a scene like that can pass by in a couple minutes, right? Or a couple seconds or whatever. But when you're the artist boarding that kind of stuff, you're living in it for days sometimes. Those deep, dark emotions. like Slow yeah, motion. Whether, even it's, it's, living like a starfish. Yeah, <laughs> like, you are so in it. Just slow motion, living like the starfish. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for real. That's really what it is. You're just like, because it takes so long. It takes so long to draw all of it. And... Oh my God, that's crazy. And being in that mindset for, yeah, slow motion is the right definition of yeah. that. Yeah, that's so crazy. You dig, you dig into the feelings, right? Like, I, I don't think it works to be disconnected from it. I think it's really important to like live it and be in it within reason of, you know, taking care of yourself. But like you come home from work that day and you're like in a, like a sad, upset mood and your partner's like, what is going on? I'm like, I actually had a great day. I'm just still in this scene. Um, so, and, and then in Conscious That, so I'm like, I was very proud of that scene on BoJack. And then, uh, and South Park, I'm like, well, but then there's also the pride that came from, like, animating Tom Brady shitting himself. So there's the opposite ends of the spectrum <laughs> of, like, oh, here's this silly, stupid sports thing that I'm, that makes me laugh. And I'm so proud to say I got to do that. But then also then there's, like, the depth of a character, uh, dealing with suicide and the regret of it, uh, that, you know, in the penultimate episode of this epic bojack horseman story <laughs> dude yeah. wow so good about your yeah. comic about your ultimate comic and like is there are you publishing it anywhere online or is it just like in your in your computer uh, vault, in computer vault <laughs> but we do have snippets of it on instagram we are at contested strip um you can also find that through my own personal handle at megan praz but yeah it's on um at contested strip we have a couple like we have the first scene of the comic on Instagram and we're still kind of figuring out our plan for release. Like the, you and I have talked about this before, but like the idea of like mm -hmm. making in a world where everything is digital, like an idea of like making a book that people can hold is so important to me. And like having like a physical record yep. of something I've made. And so that mm -hmm. is our MO and I'm sure we'll do some sort of online release eventually, but right now it's still like kind of in the vault. The first scene exists and it's so hard to draw a comic and then also keep up with the social media aspect of it. I, I need to be better about that. I've never really, yeah. you know, tried to make my social media presence be as big as it could or should be. So, Hey, hello, new followers. Maybe we'll pick up some followers from this, but, um, uh, we're going to, yeah, yeah, dude. And it, but 
Oh, I was just gonna say, but it's a testament though that you don't have to have an, a big following to work yeah. in animation because sometimes people can get uh, a little <laughs> hooked up on on that. But um, yeah, anyway, yeah, I have a yeah very like, small um, following. I get like one or two likes on my tweets. V's here like got like eight thousand likes. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, like I, I tweet something that I think is profound, and it's like it's like one like. I'm like, cool, 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 cool. Uh, <laughs> it's not gonna stop me um, from putting my opinion out there. Uh, but yeah. Maybe there's a maybe there's a purity in that, dude. Yeah, dude, I I will I will tweet something that I feel like is brilliant, or or like or I will draw something yeah. that is meaningful, and it'll get like no one will look at it. But if I tweet out, it's like a it's like a fart joke or like something so stupid. It's like a, the stupidest meme I've ever drawn in like one second. Like that's what ends up. That's what people end up seeing, and yeah. I'm like, okay, great, cool. It's a testament to being prolific and being but, persistent. I think it's just like the internet works better with silly. Yeah. I think if you mm-hmm. want to be deep Probably. and meaningful, books are yeah. better. I do feel like there is a form because when you're on the internet, you're you're you know when you like turn on your phone, you're not thinking to yourself like I I I'm I'm really up for some deep thinking today. <laughs> you're just you know you're like let me distract myself yeah. for three seconds. So yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's tough, it's tough, but it, I don't know, it's interesting. These are like interesting thing, like different worlds to think of, right? Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> I want to hear about um, when. Uh, so you're mm-hmm. making this ultimate frisbee um, comic. Um, do you have any um, stories of things that happened in real life that you use as you know? Uh, you know, fuel for the things that you write and how, and how do you adapt that to, you know, the characters in, uh, absolutely. Um, so I've played this sport now for over a decade and I think, okay. One of the things I can kind of explain to artistic people, why is there such an appeal to this sport is sometimes I I could describe it as like LARPing plus sports. Like it is a very silly (laughs) sport. Like I've been on teams where, your whole team shows up in a costume and you play against a very, very serious team who's like really aggro and takes the sport really seriously and you crush them in your like animal onesies or whatever, or your Star Wars sand people costumes <laughs> on the beach, um, whatever it is. So um, there's that. And like, I've been playing for a long time. So one summer I was really into Frisbee during one of my off seasons from South Park. I went to a beach nationals national championship tournament I lost. And also that summer I went to a European tournament because this is played all over the world called Paganello. And I remember being at a house of people who like were like Frisbee lifers, really hardcore. And I remember talking to this one guy who I really admired. I knew him to be like a very, very good ultimate Frisbee player. And we did this game, Two Truths and a Lie. And he was talking, his lie was, I've won three ultimate tournaments. And he's like, no, actually my it's a lie because I've only won one in my entire career. And I, I had this epiphany of like, why would you keep doing something over and over again for all these years if you've only won one tournament? Like, like how could you keep dealing with all of that heartbreak and lack of success and still be so in, like love this sport so much that you're willing to travel to Europe for it? And that was kind of what the com- birth the comic is like, you love something so much and it doesn't love you back, whether it's a person, whether this is the animation industry, you love it, but it doesn't love you back. So I think that's kind of the universal theme of this comic is like when you care about something so much and you love it so much, but like it doesn't 
love you in the same way. And the story starts with this character, Clint, and that's his whole thing is he's dedicated his life to ultimate Frisbee, but he's never won an ultimate tournament. And he gets recruited on this team of underdogs because they see something in him and they're going to win a national championship. He's like, you don't understand guys. I'm cursed. I never win. You don't want me. And they're like, no, 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 we got this. And then like Sam kind of what you said, drawing from real life is all these other characters are kind of the amalgamation of people I've known throughout my playing career. Like there's the super aggro jock. We call her Kate Carter. Who's like really serious, <laughs> lifts weights, like really intense. She's like the fire. And then we have this character named cheese. Who's the ice. And her jam is that she's, She's like the silly, like the party or the one who's doing jello shots on the sideline. And the contrast between those two people who like kind of can't get along with each other because they represent such opposite ends of the spectrum. They're both very good at Frisbee, but they, you know, there's the tension between them at all times of I'm the partier and drinker who shows up to the tournament drunk, but I'm awesome. And the one who's like, I'm doing sprints and I don't drink and I'm keto and whole 30 and, you know, so we have like <laughs> some kind of interesting character dynamics like that in the comic we have the old superstar who's retired uh we have the old man who's been playing forever and you know i don't know he's just like was there from the beginning of the sport um and we have like the youths we have these two young twin characters who are like 18 they're fresh out of high school they're super enthusiastic about the sport so it's kind of got all these this interesting cast of characters we have the aggressively heterosexual couple on the team, um, because one of the things about Ultimate that's kind of unique from other sports is that it's a co-ed sport. Um, men and women play on the field at the same time, which yeah. is unlike, again, this is why I think will make it different from other sports manga and other comics where, you know, like, like I love things like Haikyuu and Kuroko's basketball and stuff, but it's generally very mm -hmm. male. Um, but Frisbee is a sport where mm -hmm. you have these mixed gender teams where people play on the field at the same time. And so you always have those, like, really like I said aggressively heterosexual couple who's just like making out with each other the whole time and uh it's kind of fun uh to have that kind of dynamic and oh your ex is on the other team and oh no they're your rival that kind of thing ah! yeah that's so yeah. funny that's so good <laughs> I, I, yeah I never thought about yeah. the co-ed part of it that's just so good um, I, I I wish that I could do a touchdown dance <laughs> With my with my yeah. partner, you know what I mean. Like you do exactly. a little tango at the at the. <laughs> yeah, it's called a honey pass when you throw it to your partner, and uh, exactly. That's so. Oh. That's so cute. Yeah. It's, and then everyone's like nepotism. Yeah. Like you, 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 you chose them. It's favoritism out and, there. And I, I want to emphasize that even though there is, uh, there is, I have warning. There's a little bit of heterosexuality in this comic. It is also very queer. Me myself being a queer person, that's really important to me. So uh, there are queer characters, and there's also some queer drama more than romance. But uh, yeah, so that definitely <laughs> this comic as well. So hopefully, there's a little something for everybody in it. And even if you're not a sports fan, you can can be in it for for the frisbee drama for the the interpersonal drama yeah dude <laughs> sounds so fun i'm like oh you pitched it so well i'm like oh my I god wanna see, yeah i want to see these yeah. characters i'll I'm send like you invested. some images <laughs> what yeah what 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 was it like um uh like because i mean you start you started off on on south park and and you work on um uh so, uh, some of these shows that um, there's there's it feels like there there's not as quite as much action as there might be in a sport comic. Mm. Uh, how was that for you, like getting into the mindset and switching gears to something where it's like you you have a little bit of action, you have a little bit of comedy, everybody 
is you yeah. know in mid-action you have dynamic poses stuff like that well I have always loved sports and drawing dynamic sports poses. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was drawing football players and Pittsburgh Steelers, like from the time I could pick up a yellow crayon to draw their yellow pants. Um, so um, yeah, like that came natural to me, but it definitely is pushing me artistically because like you said, I'm most of my boarding experience is a little bit more sitcom-y and uh, it's more comedy than action. So I've had to pull a lot of reference. Like one of my favorite things to reference is um, the Young Avengers, uh, Terry McKelvey's uh, Young Avengers. Like I, I read a lot of comics, so I'm always looking at the dynamic angles they're using for fighting poses. And I'm like, how can I translate this to Frisbee and sport? And, you know, there's a lot of great sports photography out there too. So I'm like analyzing what makes good sports photography like, oh, the depth of field, how the background is blurred, or like, you know, like what angles can I achieve that you can't achieve on a camera because you're not on the field? Um, so it definitely, I, that's one of the things I love about it is how much it's pushing me artistically to think more from an action mindset. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm referencing things like Haikyuu and other sports. There's all this great sports manga out there to choose from, but uh, it's a very good point, yeah, uh, to like, go from like, I always am like, can I be more, more dynamic with this angle? Because I've come from TV where staging can be a little bit more flat, a little bit more straight on. And how can I, you know, what, but what panel best serves the story is another thing. Like, do I want to do this dynamic angle just because I think it's cool? Or do I actually think that this angle is telling the best story? And, you know, that's kind of my favorite part of it. That's what it's all about. That's what we do. That's our job as visual storytellers, right? Is to like serve the story. A cool yeah. drawing is great, but like, what's the thing that's going to tell the best story or make you feel the character's emotion the best? So I, I wanted to, to tell you as, as, as a way to, to, to <laughs> yes. connect to you, I have in a, I have in a storyboard on a show, storyboarded Frisbee. No, what? Uh, I want to see it. I have. So, so 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 there is in in one of the Halloween episodes of Regular Show that I got to write and storyboard on, we we were coming up with things that the characters were scared of, and basically the the bit is that they land on this planet where anything that they think about that they're scared of manifests and tries to kill them. Yes. So we so what we were writing is that we thought it would be funny. If the thing like Skips doesn't want to talk about what he's scared of, and then they pressure him, and they're like, "What are you scared of? What are you scared of? Why don't you tell us?" And and he and then they start manifesting, and you see just like a little bit, and and you see like a frisbee come into frame, and 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 he's like, "Oh no, frisbee freestylers!" <laughs> and it's it's there's like there's all and and like this guy like comes out of the shadows with a frisbee spinning on his finger and he's like bro go long <gasps> and like and then like all these for all these frisbee bros like are doing like tricks under their legs and spinning the frisbee and like passing it <laughs> to each other and and he's like no oh! and like and they and they all like start pelting him with frisbees and he dies and he oh dies my God, I love it. um but i i have I have boarded Frisbee stuff in a, in a show before. I love it. I need to see this. And to be fair, most ultimate Frisbee players are also terrified of freestyle Frisbee players because that's a different thing. And I am, yeah, that is. It's a different it's so monster, scary. yeah. Um, don't, don't ask. What's the difference? What's freestyle Frisbee? I've never Sean heard of it before. Sean could probably explain it better than I could. I'll, no, I'll let you explain it. 
Oh, okay, yeah. So, so ba- basically, it's it's a different form of competition where instead of trying to score goals on opposite sides of the field, and instead of like frisbee golf where you're trying to land it in a net, it's essentially um, I. It's either one or two people. I think you can do it in in twos, and I think you can do it in 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 just one. But basically, it's like doing tricks up into the air, and it comes back to you, and then you're like catching it and spinning it on your finger, and you're like you're doing like tricks and doing fancy passes to one another in like an improvised, tricky way. And um, I remember, uh, like, okay, so so I used to play ultimate frisbee, uh, but it, it was. It was like parking lot, like like we we used to like get a bunch of our cars on a Sunday night, line them up, <laughs> turn the lights on in like in a, in a Walmart parking lot, and like and we played like like a pretty street version where like like I mean you know there was some physical stuff there were you know like people would get tackled on accident and like <laughs> like it, it was a little bit extra, but but I I remember. <laughs> I I uh I was always like oh man like the trick throws are so cool and so as I was always better at doing trick throws than regular throws which was always so stupid like like uh and like uh I used I used to do like like uh people um used to try to figure out different ways to throw it that they thought were fancy and they would be like the the kickoff person or whatever and and like they would like call out the name it. They would call out the name of their move, which was like super stupid and cheesy. But I had this move that I would do. I, I I've heard people refer to it as uh, like a chicken wing throw. Uh, the chicken wing, um, where you're throwing. Yeah, it. I'm very familiar. And, and I drew, I drew it, I drew it, I drew it on 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 here on the most recent page. Oh, okay. Um, but basically, I I wouldn't just do that. I would spin around two times and jump and throw it like oh that. And I, and, and I would go buzzsaw <laughs> as, as like, <laughs> I love it. And it was, it was so, it was so stupid. It was so stupid. But um, one of the reasons why I really, there's, I have a soft place in my heart for it, even though I don't, you know, do it as much anymore and I'm out of shape, but uh it was one of the things that my friends and I did when other kids were um, uh, partying a lot. Like I was never part of like a party culture or party lifestyle. And a lot of my friends were straight edge and um, you know, we'd all listen to hardcore music and whatever. And so so on weekends we would, (laughs) I, I, I didn't, but I have a lot of friends that did. But they, they, we would, we would meet up every weekend and that's how we hung out. We would, we would play music. We would play ultimate Frisbee and uh, I, yeah, I have a fondness in my heart for it. I am so impressed by your knowledge of flying disc sports. Like you are higher than 95% of the population in your explanations. Like most people, when I say I play ultimate, they're like, Oh, like disc golf. Yeah. That sounds fun. You know, like where are the dogs? Um, So I'm extremely impressed by your knowledge and, uh, I wonder if it's too late for me to draw in the buzzsaw into my comics <laughs> as a pole play. It's oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> please. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's so, it's, I, I remember um, there, there was somebody uh, uh, on the other team. They had this way of throwing it. That, uh, I, I'm not sure what the throw is called, but you, 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 th- you can throw it with your thumb Thumber. like this, where you, uh, I, 
a thumber. Um, but so, but he used to be able to throw it so, so, so far. But it, but he could only do it by by putting it to his neck, and he used to call it the violinist. And so that's what he would yell when he threw it off. And 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 I I think that this <laughs> and it was it was funny because whenever I would go to like like pickup games, uh, in. LA or or elsewhere like I I was like I think I play this sport a little bit wrong <laughs> I think we played in the parking lot and like there were a few people that knew what they were doing but we like sort of put some rules on hold so I always felt like oh I don't know if I'm doing the right thing <laughs> but uh yeah yeah that that is incredible it sounds like the pickup game I started at in LA because I didn't play ultimate until I moved to LA and I found it was a bunch of artists and animators that played this game in North Hollywood where it was like you know, usually ultimates played seven on seven and they're out of bounds. And it was like, it was like 14 on 14. It was just mm. pure chaos of people. It felt like being in one of those like star Wars battles in the sky when like all the tie fighters, all the like ships are just flying at you in different directions. And there's a disc flying over your head and no one's counting a stall count. And it's just like pure, pure chaos. And then I got into a little bit more serious form of ultimate, but yeah, you could, you could have a lot of fun with that game. I, I get it. And, uh, you would have fit in. You would have fit yeah. in in that. that I, re I remember meeting up. Right <laughs> I re I remember meeting up in the parking lot, and we all used to um, bring our own frisbee, and we would go on the other side of the parking lot, and we would all we would bring a uh, we would bring a couple frisbees, and we would all try to hit the stop sign all the way at the other end just to practice our aim, yeah. and we would do that for like four or five hours, just like trying to throw it across the parking lot and hit a stop sign, uh, and most of us would not hit it. <laughs> but yeah. but uh, yeah, I don't know. It good is it's some good memories around ultimate frisbee. Uh, yeah, didn't know you were gonna plant an ultimate frisbee. Ally. But there's a reason why I was recruited. Yeah. I didn't even know myself. I just found out right before you came on the show. Uh, I'm so stoked. Usually That's... people gloss right over the frisbee I love it. And he's like, yeah, let's talk frisbee. Let me show you the buzzsaw. I love that. I love because... that so much. I, I kind of hope that when your copy gets published, I, I am going to be looking for that reference. You have to sneak it in there. It's too late. It's recorded. People okay. will come after I'll, you. I'll... I'd, I'd like to tr I'd like to try something real quick because I am not super familiar with the technical names of a lot of these moves. I was wondering if you could say the name of a move, and V and I both try to draw what we think that Maybe looks like. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Would you be down, V? All right. Yeah. So, yeah. Sean, you're gonna get the scuba, and V, you're gonna get the hammer. Oh wow! Damn, these are like really fun. <laughs> I love that it's so anime. Like when you think about it, like or like yeah. wrestling. <laughs> oh my god! Well, what while we draw the frisbee prompts, um, so for anyone who's listening on Spotify or iTunes, make sure you check out the YouTube video. Then you can see us drawing these like crazy prompts. I'm gonna get you started on okay, some questions. Okay, let's go. Um, so from our patrons over on the Discord, we have from Brother to Drummer um, question, what are your thoughts on a story episode having a happy ending? Bojack kept tearing out my heart, yet I always wanted more, but I vastly prefer a happy resolution to things. Um, do the characters steer the mood and resolution? 
So kind of like, mm. it's just your thoughts and philosophy on, you know, happy endings versus, you know, drama. I think that's, I don't want to speak for Raphael, but that's the whole premise of the show is that like, it's a sitcom, right? And we're all used to the sitcom ending being like, super happy, you know, everything works out at the end. Ah, oh, the lesson you learned pays off and everyone smiles and hugs at the end of the episode. And Bojack's whole jam, the show, was flipping that script, right? And, you know, the thing that you thought was going to happen wasn't going to happen. Actually, it turned out horribly for Bojack. And what I like about that show is I think it found a place for, like, the melancholy, you know? Like, it allowed you to sit in the sadness of the show in a way that, like, do you really want every single show to be like a happy ending or everything to work out? Um, I like the show that you, you know, when at the end of an episode, it would hit you so hard. And then the credits by group love would come on. It'd be like back in the nineties, I was in it, you know, and it would, you know, so like, <laughs> I love the contrast of that emotion of like sitting in the sadness of whatever you just saw. And then this like bubbly, uh, kind of popish song comes on at the end. Um, so I don't think Bojack was ever going to get his truly, truly happy ending. I, I, again, this is all the creator of the show. Um, I, I, I think there's a lot of room mm. for emotional nuance. Like, I think we've come a long way in television to go from that sitcom feel-good TV to something that's a little bit more deep and pensive. There's a place for both. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um. I love that. That's a great answer. Because like you said, we have like, yeah, the sitcom formula, it's such a clever yeah. thing too. Like the sitcom formula is like such a, it's so embedded in our brains, like kind of taking uh, that and like turning, like turning it out, out, inside out or like upside down. It's like really, it's, it's what yeah. makes the show so cool. Um, this is just like a kind of like crazy kind of fun question, but I, <laughs> I think it's kind of funny uh, from our patron, Joe Benson. Um, do you think Bojack would date Tuka or oh Birdie? And how long God. would those relationships uh, last? <laughs> I don't think Bojack would date. I think Birdie would be far too anxious to even go near Bojack, whereas Tuka would probably, I think Tuka would use Bojack as like a one night stand and then be out, uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's he's he's too yeah, much of a like, drag. I'm out. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's sad. And then Bojack would be like calling her and like trying to text her, and she'd just be moving on to the next thing. So it's not whether or not Bojack would date them; it's whether they would date Bojack. <laughs> um. Oh, I love this question from uh, one of our listeners on and previous friend of the show at Magic Bunny Art. Uh, what do you like the most about working on adult hey, animated Magic Bunny shows? Art. Um. I, you know, like we've been talking about just in the last question, I like that you can tackle a little bit more deep subject matter. Um, there's a lot of great children's cartoons out there, so I don't say that to belittle them, but like I like that you can get into things like addiction or like the most recent season of Tuca and Birdie was about like dating an alcoholic and there's all these, you know, trauma and, you know, these much more adult deep issues that really resonate with people and whether it be like the disgusting gross satire of South Park and letting your mind go to some of the like the most ridiculous disgusting places or you know again exploring the depths that I talked about from like the view from halfway down I, I, I love the adult themes and um yeah I think adult cartoons are 
great and that animation is a beautiful medium to explore those things and it's important that we you know have adult animation and not just get pigeonholed as a kids kids thing kids medium yeah yeah i agree yeah i feel like um especially these shows like bojack to Birdie, like they've really kind of they're like tra- trailblazers into this like kind of like Absolutely. new type of adult animation i think uh yeah uh, I am just going to give a shout out to um, at underscore Jordan Hess. We've kind of covered this question, but I'll just read it anyway. Uh, what was it like traveling all the way from the East Coast to the West Coast for your first animation job? Did you move to LA first or did you wait to be hired before moving? Obviously, second question, we covered it. But I guess they're traveling. Oh, hey, part. Jordan. I actually like? know Jordan. Um, so um, for me, like being a artsy queer kid who grew up in small town Pennsylvania moving to LA was like the best thing ever um I immediately felt at home I love yeah like I like the east coast and I love my Pittsburgh roots I'm so proud of them I am a terrible towel waving Steelers fan at heart but uh I found that you can be that and also like thrive in Los Angeles around so many like just brilliant creative people you can kind of find whatever type of person that you're looking for whatever type of Whatever you're into, you can find it in a big city like L.A. Um, so whether that be, like, your weird D&D group to, like, your, like, weird BDSM sex ring to your dreadlock pot-smoking hippies down in Venice Beach to your ultimate frisbee jocks, um, you can find whatever kind of group of people that you are looking for in Los Angeles. And I love how diverse and eclectic it is. Amazing food. Um, I'm a big fan. And... Um, but that's not to say it's better than those other places. It's just different. Yeah, I love that. Great answer. LA does have everything. Yeah, it's 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 yeah. scary to move, but it's, it's also fun. One of the reasons <laughs> I didn't go to college, like I wanted to go to like a Cal Arts or like a USC or one of those places, but I wasn't quite ready to make that move. I was. I felt very lucky that I was able to stay kind of local mm. with Edinburgh um, and really just focus on animation before. I got into like, like even for those two and a half years I wasn't working, I kind of got swept up into the LA of everything. It's very easy to do that and lose your way. So it's important to stay true to whoever it is that you are. If you make the transition to like from like a small East coast place to like a big city out here, but yeah, I love it. And it's, you know, V you probably have opinions on this too, but it's like, it seems like it's increasingly less essential to move to a big city to work in animation these days with so much being, remote i don't know i assume you're in la too sean right yeah right but you know like i know a lot of people who have since left or people who have worked remotely their Mm -hmm. entire job like my last gig um there were two people on my storyboard team who three three of my four board artists were like not in los angeles like i had one in uh new york and like two in portland and then one in la Mm. yeah this is gonna be really interesting Oh, sorry. Yeah, I over there. The... No, 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 no. I just worked with someone from uh, wow. Spain. But sorry, go. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm. I'm really interested to see what. Um, for a little bit of like insider knowledge for y'all. Um, listening is that. Um, um, this is actually uh some of the stuff that the guild kind of tries to talk about with the AMPTP, like the kind of like, uh, like having this be a nationwide uh, union so that anybody can work from anywhere in the states to in in those LA jobs. So this is something that's like uh, obviously freelance. If you're freelance, you might not always be union, but you can probably work from anywhere. And it's like a different under like a different like um, 
role or like for it's just like benefits stuff but like at the end of the day you can probably work in animation from anywhere it just kind of depends on like the kind of status you're gonna get I think yeah 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 um I like this question by at Abby Brasher uh, how difficult, if at all, did you find the transition from animating to boarding oh, to directing? That's a great question, Abby. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think with animation to boarding, I got very lucky that BoJack, because of the type of show it was, we were boarding in Flash. It was a really, and it's, as I said before, it's such an acting heavy show. Um, you know, the staging is much more simple. It's very sitcom-y. It was very, like, sometimes we'd get, like, one camera angle for, like, a two-minute scene or one background, and you'd have to just punch in around that background. So I it was a really lucky for me, again, right show for me to transition from animating to storyboarding. It really played to my strengths. And um, so, you know, one of the things that I had to really remember, cause, because when you're an animator, you're so focused on performance and acting, and I still have to remind myself as a board artist is staging clarity and storytelling come first. Like you cannot, when you go from being an animator to a board artist, you cannot just, Oh, that's a juicy acting beat. I really want to do this pose or whatever. No, 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 no. You're staging your composition comes first. Like stay really loose. Don't even do the acting. Like it is all, all, all thumb. Like I force myself to thumbnail still on paper when I'm doing, when I'm boarding scenes because I, and I board, you know, very th small thumbnails just because I'm like storytelling, staging, storytelling, staging, composition. Great. Then you can dig into the meteor acting stuff. So that was that transition from animation to boards. And then from boards to directing, um, I really, really liked it because I think I was very fortunate to have really incredible directors for ever since I became a board artist I I feel like I have had this cornucopia of amazing directors and you kind of just like pick and choose from their different styles like I can name like all of them again like I mentioned Amy Winfrey Adam Parton uh Stephen Chan like I'm gonna leave someone out and make them feel really bad Alex Salyer um all of these uh people Molly Helms Erica Perez god I could keep going Samantha Gray who is also on this podcast Yes! Uh, again, I'm sorry, I one director that I left out um, because you've all been so <laughs> amazingly influential in in like what I was able to pick and choose for my own directing style, and um, you know, again, that's why I feel like it's so important to do your own projects on the side because, if especially if you're working with other people, because then you have to not just do what's in your head and you're not just doing it, but you have to be able to articulate what you want to other people and. I think it was also helpful that I've worked on such a variety of shows that, you know, I've been able to like kind of, and I've seen, you know, seeing how the South Park writing process works, you see it from the inside and then like, you know, the scripts from Tuca and Birdie were always so good and Bojack as well. Then, you know, take the, all that stuff with you and bring it to your first directing experience and really try to understand what the showrunner is going for. Like know what material they're referencing. It's much more big picture, right? Like, you got to know what their influences are, like what they're going for. And, um, and then the other big part of it is you are managing a team. You have these people under you and what you want to do, like my goal is always like, how can I get the best out of the people? Like how can, you know, people, everyone brings different skills to the table as an artist. And it's like, what, what are their skill set? Like, and how can you get the most out of it? What's the scene that's going to give them the best chance of success? based on their life experience or based on how they draw or this person's really good at acting, this person's really good at staging, you know, like 
putting your people in like very strategic positions to succeed, I think, and understanding who they are is in casting them, you know, like I'm never going to be a director that like, is like, okay, you take the first third of the episode, you take the second third, you know, it's like, no, I think it's really important to cast by scene and by storyline throughout the episode. And, um, you know, and try to give people scenes that they want to work on that they're going to be passionate about. And, you know, I don't know. I think those are all things that are important as a, as a director and, you know, when you're in the first, I'll say one more thing as I tend to be a little long winded, but you know, when you're in your meeting with your director to like, you know, we'd have a pre thumb and we'd go over it with the showrunner. Like it's, you know, Pete Merriman, I should shout out him as well. He was my supervising director for my first directing gig, which again, taking it back to meeting Amy Winfrey, right? Uh, that's her husband. So if all these years later I am directing and her husband is my supervising director and he's a, really couldn't have been asked for a better supervising director for my first one. But you know, when you're in, he always said when you're in a pre-thumb with the showrunner, it's like, how do you start a conversation with them? You don't even have to get right what's on the script, but like, it's like getting as much information out of them, like what their intentions are with the script and what they want. So like, even if you show them an image of this is what I was thinking for this scene. And they're like, no, no, that's completely wrong. Don't take it personally. That's actually great. Cause now you know what they don't want and you can work with them. And you know, yep. it's about like, figuring out what not only the story like your own creative vision what you think it should be but like how they want to tell this story and make sure because that's going to save you problems later down the road um it's you know get it wrong in the pre-thumb so then when the board artist does it it's like you're already hopefully hitting the mark um yeah, yeah. that's so great like i honestly that was a thing about working yeah. on captain fall at netflix i learned that that was the pipeline from Bojack yeah. was so great is like we were doing this pre-pitch of the episode so then because when you're working with um EPs that are writers or come from live action and they're not used to the animation pipeline uh, you need to give them as as much uh of your plans as early as possible so they can call the shots because at the end of the day it's their show so that was so great uh on Captain Fall I was able to be like hey, I grabbed all these pictures from Google Images. Is that what you're imagining for the mansion? And they're like, no, it has to be more like, I don't know, South yeah. Hemisphere or something, you know, like, uh, sure. obviously I'm just making this up. But um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's been just like, so, and I've heard that it's not very common for shows to work that way. I've heard that this is kind of like the BoJack yeah. pipeline, um, which I think I'm so glad to have learned that because I'm like, oh, why isn't everybody doing this? I, you know, <laughs> you can solve so yeah, many problems so I think fast. It's really vital as a director to have that pre-thumb yeah. week. It's so, so helpful. And I think I attribute that credit to, again, Pete Merriman for making us a point to do that mm. on our current show because it's so helpful, you know, because, you, you know, when you're a director, you don't always get a lot of FaceTime with the creators of the show and you yeah. don't get any, often any FaceTime with the actual writer of your show. Um so yeah. yeah, really trying to like pick their brain and show them what you intend to do before you put all the effort into boarding something is, is so helpful. And, um, and I think it really went again in my first directing gig, which is for a show called praise PD, which you can Google, hopefully it'll be out. I don't, I can't say when it'll be out, but, um, I hope you mm -hmm. all will like it. It stars Annie Murphy from Schitt's Creek and, um, yeah, it was a blast to work on the showrunners. Anna Dresden, who was a uh, writer on SNL, head writer on SNL, and Monica Padrick. And yeah, it was really, really fun to work with them. Um, and yeah, like trying to really understand their sense of humor and what they found funny. And often those their sense of humor would align with mine, which was good. And yeah, it was a great first 
directing experience and I had a great board team. I feel really, really lucky that that was my first, uh, it's always so important to have a supervising director that like wants you to succeed. And I could feel that with Pete the whole way through, like who just, yeah, wants, yeah. yeah, wants you to have the best experience and that makes you want to work hard for them as well. You know, like you never want to, like, yeah. I never wanted to let Pete down ever. <laughs> Pete's so great. I he was on Captain yeah. Fall as well. He was a director, and he's so chill. It's so cool to like be able to talk to him because he's been like he's been through the ringer. I mean, I guess kind of also like you, like he's yeah. he's worked on South Park, so he's just kind of like. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're making cartoons here. This isn't brain surgery. No one's gonna die. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <clears throat> on the flip side, of... oh, oh, sorry, sorry, go go. Uh, I was just gonna keep uh kind of like giving shout outs for. Yeah from the questions uh we had a question from at tim levang who was asking a little bit about kind of like we but we kind of went over like how it was like like the atmosphere on south park and stuff like uh, earlier in the episode so i think we kind of like covered that a little bit uh one from at bleach uh aihime um which was how was boarding different from tukan birdie versus bojack horseman which you kind of like yeah touched on a little bit i'll try to keep it short but um yeah, like they're obviously stylistically anyone who's watched both shows, they're very different. Like Bojack, it was more about the acting, it was very sitcom y staging, and it was very puppeted from a board standpoint. And um and then Tuka and Birdie was like it was a little bit more free. It was like you could make really goofy, fun drawings and um it was a lot looser. There weren't we didn't didn't rely on puppets nearly as much, which was great. So, um and you could put so much of your own creativity into it. That was one thing, you know, working for Lisa Hanawalt that was awesome is, you know, having a writer who is also an artist um, was that she just gave us so much creative freedom to really put our own jokes in it and really build upon the great visual language and great characters she's already established in the script. And, um, you know, I'd say this to all the animation writers out there. I don't know if writers listen to this podcast, but a way to make your artists happy is to have them have some like creative agency over what you're doing. Cause you can still have them execute your script faithfully while still, you know, letting you, we want to bring our talents to your script. We want to make your script better. We want to make your show funnier. We want to, you know, make it be the best possible show it can be. So when you have a showrunner who's like, yeah, that joke that you added was awesome. It feels so good. And it really makes your, you have artists who really want to work on your show and want to do their best possible job. And, um, and even in Bojack too, which was a little bit more tight script wise, you know, I remember all the animal puns and animal gags, like that used to be the best part when you used to get that like two second establishing shot and you get to put an animal pun in and come with it on your own, like Raphael or whoever wouldn't write those in. And it just, the, like the artist would take so much pride in coming up with their like silly little animal gags. And that's, that's how you make, that's how you have like a team of artists and board artists and directors who like love your show. And again, let us feel like part of the creative process. Uh, the difference between the two is, uh, yeah, Bojack uh, a little bit tighter and with Tuka it was much more free flowing. Uh, yeah, so I kind of wanted to uh, give a shout out to at spooky un- underscore cat who also had a great question. Uh, but since we're running a little long on time, everyone, these episodes are so much fun. Uh, and, you know, we wish we could have them for four hours, but 
that's the rule. Um, we're just going to have you talk a little bit about creative block, what it feels like for you and uh, how'd you get over it? Okay. Um, for me, creative block is at the end of my work day. Sometimes it's really, really hard to want to just jump back into my personal projects and especially do the creative, like mm -hmm. thumbnailing, like brain work of creativity versus the like, oh, this is grunt work, I'm doing line work, or I'm just doing little technical things. So I think for me to get over creative block, it's like, I just get out of, I try to get out of my head. I go for a walk, I do something else, I work out, I play ultimate frisbee, um, you know, I try to get away from the computer. I get as far away from the computer as I can. And I feel like actually the best thing as I'm meandering to my answer, as I usually do, is going for <laughs> a nice long walk or a bike ride. That's when my brain, when my mind is like, blank is when like the characters from my comic immediately pop into my head and I it's almost like I hear their voices and I'm like and like and like just my brain gets flooded with like oh this is the story I need to be telling oh I need to think more deeply about this so I think getting away mm. from the computer going for a run going for a bike ride something that like gets my body moving gets the blood flowing getting me out of mm. the like I'm sitting in front of the computer and I don't know what to draw um situation is <laughs> block yeah. I love it. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's like, usually that's, that one's a winner getting like yes. moving anything that, um, anything that you want to plug Absolutely. while you're on the show. Um, if you want to follow me personally, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Megan Praz. Um, more importantly, if you want to stay up to date on my sports graphic novel, it is at contested strip. And uh, hopefully we will be better about posting things on social media soon. But yes, yeah, stay tuned. We have the book hopefully coming out this year. We have a goal to finish the art by this summer. And we have lots of tasty, tasty samples that um, we hope to post over the next couple of months. So uh, thank you, you guys, too, so much for letting me talk so much about my personal work. Because it's something, you know, everyone wants to hear about your, like, South Park and BoJack and Tuca. But I really mm -hmm. appreciate you both giving me so much space to talk about, like, my own passion projects it means a lot no but you know like that's what we do right we're like creatives and it's like there's a reason why you know we're in the synthesis like we love being creative so we all have like our little thing on the side and i think that's like what's <laughs> makes us like whole yeah. right you know <laughs> mm -hmm. well that's the end of this creative block Megan, thanks for being our guest Thank and sharing you. your story. Thank you so much for having me to your excellent host. And um, I, I want to mention that as we were wrapping this up, my microphone fell over and I caught it. So this makeshift setup made it all the way to the end and now it has toppled. So I think Frisbee yes. reflexes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, see, it's important to play sports and be an artist. So, you know, you can catch the mic when your podcast uh, mic falls over. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you both so much for having me. And I uh, love the podcast. And uh, yeah, you both are awesome. And thanks to our listeners. Follow us on Twitter at CRTB Block, where we ask for drawing prompts and questions to ask our guests. Huge thanks to our editor, Clements, for editing the podcast and Malik for. Uh, helping us to produce this show. If you love our show, then support us on Patreon. Becoming a patron gets you early access to interviews as well as bonus episodes. And it helps us pay for things like Zoom and Google Drive and all these little knickknacks that are important to uh, getting a podcast rolling. Click the link in the description of this episode. I have been your host, V. 
And I was Sean, a.k.a. Lord Spew. Keep being creative, and we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye!